So, welcome back to our journey through 1 Samuel. And I think what I'm going to do is open us up with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful you have called us back here today. It's time that we can come together in fellowship, to study, to pray together. Um, well, I do want to lift up today in prayer um, Diana. This is Linda Manor's sister-in-law who has been fighting um, a terrible, terrible brain illness and is having trouble again. And so we just ask that you would heal her and bring a lot of comfort to their family. Indeed, there are so many stories, even in a place like St. Andrew, uh, that the people who, who need your healing and comfort, and we are grateful um, to know that you are with us through it all. And we know that you're with us today and just fill us with lots of energy and enthusiasm as we return to the story of Samuel. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we, we do return today to the story of Samuel. I'm going to put my... Oh, Scotty. Okay, come on now. Cooperate. I'm going to put on Do Not Disturb, maybe Airplane Hold, maybe anything I can find. I don't know what half of these things even are on here. I don't know. But I don't want to get disturbed. So, let's see. We, we have the Ark. The Ark is back in Kiriath-Jerim. Samuel is stepping forward um, for the tribes as the fully grown judge of Israel. We just sort of started that, that section. And um, so we're going to pick up in chapter 7. I think what makes sense, we got a little ways into chapter 7. Um, but let's just go back to chapter 7, verse 1, for an easy place to start. And we'll just, just read on in for a second. Okay. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and they took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it at Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. And we talked last week about these. They're treating it in a priestly way, in a sacred way, which is what they had not done when they took it into battle or casually treated it as they brought it into um, another town. But now it's being treated appropriately, I guess is the word. So the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Now Samuel is a book that doesn't cover huge, like centuries of time and so forth, okay? So it, 20 years in the context of the book of Samuel is a long time. Then it's written, then all the people of Israel turned back to Yahweh, which is a way of describing that after what had happened and the ark being stolen, that the people have repented. I preached about that on Sunday, talked about it in my class. Repentance is to do a U-turn and come back to God. Or if you have not been a Christian, to do a U-turn and come to God. In that case, we call it like, what? Conversion, I guess. So, then all the people of Israel turned back to Yahweh. It's just, those sentences are always wonderful. They're not common, sadly, in the Old Testament, but they're always wonderful. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to Yahweh with all your hearts, 
Then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to Yahweh, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Sort of, if you're coming back to Yahweh, act like it. You can't come back to Yahweh and still embrace the pagan gods and goddesses. A turn of repentance on the part of any of us means that our lives will be different. The life of a disciple is not the life led by just any Joe Blow out there in the larger secular world. Verse 4, So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtaroths, two of the names of these foreign gods, and served Yahweh only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with Yahweh for you. He will speak to God on their behalf, and they're going to gather at Mizpah, in a, which is a central location. Um, I put the star on. It's where I put the star on it last week. It's about where it is, right there, on the central mountain spine, mountain, okay, hill, hilly spine, in the, that runs down the length of Israel. Assemble all Israel, assemble all of the tribes at Mizpah, and I will intercede with Yahweh for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord as an offering. Water is a symbol of, of something that is precious in this land because there's never enough. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, we have sinned against Yahweh. So really that whole, this whole little paragraph here is the story of some of what I'm talking about in my Sunday class when I talk about salvation and, and the need for contrition, for confession, for repentance. That these are all pieces of what it means to be saved. And um, Samuel has said to them, turn back to Yahweh, set aside the foreign gods. They make offerings to God. They confess, they fast, and really all is good. These are just a couple of really nice paragraphs. All is good. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. He is, to go back to the book of Judges, they have people who are referred to as a judge. Most are men, one of the most well-known, I guess, maybe is Deborah, a woman. One of the women I'd like to meet. A woman, she's the judge of Israel. And what the judge would do is, they would typically live in a centralized place and they would do a couple of things. One, they would settle disputes between the tribes. Not within the tribe, that's the tribal chieftain's part. But with, between the tribes and they would lead Israel in battle against their enemies. So it's Examples from the book of Judges are Samson, Gideon, Barak, Deborah, and um, now the last of them is Samuel. They, Samuel is not, though it says, what does it say actually in the NIV? Leader. Okay. Good choice of words. Samuel is not king of Israel. He's not the ruler of Israel. He's not the king of the 12 tribes. So who is the king of the 12 tribes? God, again. God, lock that away. So let's, let's connect that to Jesus for a second. God, God is their king right here where we are right now. And the story that's gonna unfold is that they're gonna abandon a human king, okay? 
not good. And they will have human kings with all of their failings. When it's God who is supposed to be their king, when you move all the way forward to Jesus this time, who is their, who is their king? Do they have a king? Do they have a ruler? Herod, the Romans, Pontius Pilate, they got lots of them. And so if you were a radical on the streets of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, and you had a chariot, on your chariot you'd put a bumper sticker that says, no king but God. You see, no king but God, because that harkens back to how it should have been. No king but God. No king but God. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Sunday, he rides in as Messiah, which is a kingly word, right? It's a royal term. Messiah is a royal term. It means the anointed one. Kings were anointed. Jesus, on Palm Sunday, takes every symbol of Messiahship and wraps it around himself. John, in particular, does a very cool way of, of helping the reader, in a, in a subtle way, grasp that Jesus rides in not only as Messiah, but that Yahweh has returned to Jerusalem in Jesus. Because you and I both know that Jesus is not only Messiah, He is God. So in Jesus, God has returned, right, to claim his throne. But in the interim, from where we're about to get to here, all the way to Jesus, those bumper stickers by people who kind of got it and wanted to, to often revolutionaries, no king but God. So that's really a good phrase to lock away, right, and to realize that when they demand a human king, it's all going to start going off the track because God is to be their king. Any questions about that? And that's why Samuel is only referred to as leader, as the judge. Okay. Verse 7. Well, when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the Red Star, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid of, of because of the Philistines. Last time, remember what happened last time? The Philistines kicked them all over the place and took the ark. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to Yahweh our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Because they've returned to God. God is their king. They've returned to God. And now there's a threat from the Philistines. The Philistines are the big... They're the big enemy throughout the book of Samuel, the big enemy. They're on the coast, they're on, the, remember these are, look, right on the map, Philistia, these are the Philistine cities. And Ekron, Gath kind of moves back and forth as sort of the line between the Israelites and the Philistines moves back and forth. So they come to Samuel, and they, do, they say to Samuel, Samuel, do not stop crying out to Yahweh our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb. Is Mona here today? A suckling lamb, I assume, is the lamb that is still on mama's breast. 
Even I figured that one out, Mona. <laughs> Bob would be so proud of me too. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh. Okay, I'll explain the offerings. There are two basic kinds of offerings that they made. One was like this, a whole burnt offering. You would take the animal and you would put the animal on the altar, um, which was outside the um, tabernacle proper, and you would burn the whole thing up. And the smoke would go up and the whole animal would be consumed by the barbecue. I have done that before when I failed to check the barbecue in time and the hot dogs have come off looking like little black pencils. What? Yeah, I should have done something. So that's a whole burnt offering. Now there's another kind of offering that's typically called a fellowship offering. That's where the animal is basically cooked for eating. And so it would be shared and it was a way to express this fellowship offering that is shared by the people and by God, right? So picture a big banquet and God's a guest, you know, you know, the people are really, the people are God's guests. So fellowship offerings are just more like barbecues and um, the whole burnt offering is more like the way I cooked hot dogs last time. Okay, so Samuel offers this suckling lamb as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh, and he cried out to Yahweh on Israel's behalf, and Yahweh answered him. Okay? That doesn't mean God's speaking in Samuel's ear. It's telling us that God is going to do something. Okay? So while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day Yahweh thundered with loud thunder, against the Philistines, threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Betkar. So, how was this victory won? By the military leadership of the Israelites? It's been won by God. Not the military leadership, not the not the abilities at arms of their soldiers or their men or anything. It's won by God. And it's won by God because they had turned back to God. God had promised to look after them. And God does. Now, don't ask me what people experienced on the battlefield that day. I don't know. All we have is what is written. Okay? I, we have what is written. And the point of it is to tell particularly future generations that yes, God fought on their behalf, that yes, God rescued them from the Philistines. Rescue has lots of dimensions to it. And this is one, literally rescued them from the Philistines. It was God's victory. And that, that story is repeated, it happened several times in the Old Testament, okay? Where God takes the initiative and chases away um, the enemies for a time. Because the Philistines, well, there's only so far they can go, right? <laughs> this is the Mediterranean. So, and if you've been to Israel, there's not a lot of space between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. So that, that's, they just kind of run back to their homes and their towns. 
Okay, so. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, that same area. Um, he named it Ebenezer. You know there's this hymn that, that's lift, lift up our Ebenezer? Come thou found. Lift up your Ebenezer or something like that. And if you're a little kid or even many adults, you look at that and the first thing you think, of course, is Scrooge. Scrooge, you know, it's the only Ebenezer I know. <laughs> it just comes directly from the Hebrew, basically. It means stone of help. It means it's, a, it, it's like a stone is erected because stones are hard to move. So they erect a big, big stone and maybe some smaller ones with it. And they dedicate it to God, and it's an Ebenezer because it is recognizing God's help. It's an acknowledgement of what God has done for them. Right? So it, in the hymn, if you raise up your Ebenezer, you're acknowledging that God is your rescuer, your helper. Charlotte? Does it have anything to do with the town Ebenezer up there? No. No, it doesn't. But there may be another Ebenezer up there. I don't really know. Because it, it just means stone of help. So there, would, there could be more than one. Because they would often put markers and stones up in different places. The key is in the meaning of the word. We're tied to the battle. So it's down in... It's down in this area. Down, down, down in the star. Between Mizpah and a place a little bit to the west. Because that's, that's where the Philistines came and attacked them. In that same central area where much of the action happens. Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines. <coughs> the towns from Ekron to Gath, both on the map here, that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. So remember I said, so it's kind of like, I mean, it's not clear-cut boundaries, you know, done by surveyors like we have in our world today, but there's still, there's still the land of the Israelites and the land of the Philistines, and so the line moves back and forth depending on who is being dominant at the time. Pretty straightforward. <clears throat> We, we have a God of love and we have a God of justice and we have a God who is determined to rescue humanity despite ourselves and he's chosen to do it through the family of Abraham. And so one of the tasks that God has is the survival of the family of Abraham, the survival of the Israelites. Because, because that, Don says, but he has the power to soften the hearts of the Philistines. So when do you cross the line into turning somebody into a puppy or a robot or something? I think one of the ways, one of the ways you come to understand how God sees humans is to understand that it's a very, very elevated view. And God is... 
God is not going to turn us into robots. God is not going to turn us into puppies. And he has to bring these Israelites through these centuries as the Israelites are striving sometimes to be true and faithful to God and live up to the covenant made they made at at Mount at Mount Sinai and it's a difficult world it's a world much closer to the world of Conan the barbarian so God could just wave his like his magic wand over everything and like fix it all but God is not a God of the magic wand that diminishes humanity it diminishes our choices um, and the, and the evidence in Scripture is that's simply not how God works. If you want to, if you want to attack God's people, you can. If you want to shake your fist at God and walk away, you can. It isn't, it isn't a loving thing to turn humans into puppies or robots or take away their choices manipulate their hearts, manipulate their minds. That, to me, that's not loving. That, that that's a, might be achieving an outcome, you think, if, but it's, it's not even achieving the outcome because the love that God desires is a love that has to be freely given or it's not love at all, right? He can't, he can't touch their hearts. And like if I reached out here and, and touched Don's heart and I said, Don, Don, Oh, you're going to love me now. I, I, what, what, what's that song? Love Potion Number 9. <laughs> I would not give that to Don. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Love Potion Number 9, right? Love Potion Number 9 is this potion where you, he gives it to this girl, and now she sees him, and he's all like, oh, Mr. Wonderful, and all that kind of stuff. But it's not real. Every person I know wants to be loved by a willing heart. And so God's love is not the only way to understand who God is. There are large portions of the New Testament in which the word love does not even appear. God is a God of justice and mercy and love. Um, there are many dimensions to God and God refuses to what? necessarily fit all of our expectations. Last week, didn't we talk about God being dangerous? In here? Did we? I think so. I think we did. There are several stories in Scripture, more than several, where there's a, almost a wildness to God. And you say, well, God's not supposed to act like that. Well, so you say. But God is God. God is God. So anyway, good question. I can't hear you, Kathy. In the, Old, in the Old Testament, he was kind of dominant. You know, he did things that to stop. And, and yes. So, so what you have to stay away from, though, Kathy is asking me about the God of the Old Testament, presumably a little bit against what you see in Jesus. True, but but that can't be, because there is one God who has always been, is now, and always shall be. The difference is. I think, the, the circumstances. And when you read your Old Testament well, 
you come to a place like Hosea chapter 2, which I'm, I'm doing Hosea on Mondays. In chapter 2, the first part of chapter 2 is all about the Israelites running away from God and all of the things that are going to come from that and they're not good. And then in a half a breath, it turns and you're just thinking the hammer's about to fall on them. And God says, ah, therefore, you're waiting for the hammer, therefore, I will allure her and I will take her out, this is Israel, into the wilderness and we will start over, kind of like young lovers. And it takes a little bit more effort, I think, in the world of Conan Barbarian to see, to find God expressing God's self in that way. Um, but when you do, it's beautiful and it happens over and over again. Right now, what is God doing? God is expressing his love for the Israelites who are the ones he has chosen, not just for their sake, right? This is not about for the sake of the Israelites. He has chosen, chosen them so that humanity will be rescued. That's why Jesus is a Jew and not Mongolian or something else. Jesus ha comes from the family of Abraham because it's that, that man Abraham, his wife Sarah, that family, the people who become part of that family that God has chosen to work through to accomplish this big purpose of reconciling humanity to God. And what you see in Scripture is a progressive revelation of who God is. One example, forgiveness. It's my classic example. At the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, there's a man named Lamech who was injured by another man, slapped in the face, and Lamech kills him. Okay, so it's sort of the world of Conan, you know, you strike me, I kill you, you know, you kill my horse or my wife, I'll burn down your whole darn village and kill everybody. Unlimited vengeance. No sense of forgiveness. Then you move forward to Moses and the, the covenantal law. What does it say? Famously, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Which to us today seems kind of barbaric. But if you live in a world of unlimited vengeance, to have equal retribution, that's progress. Now you slap me, all I can do is slap you back. Okay, then you read on and you come to the psalm and God says, vengeance is mine. Now you leave it all to God. And then you read on and Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive my brother? And Jesus says 70 times 7, which is really unlimited forgiveness. So, it isn't that God changes, but God's revelation of God's self changes, deepens, that's a better word, deepens over time until you finally come to the full revelation of who God is. And when do you come to that? What or whom is the full revelation of God? Jesus. Jesus is the first time you don't have to use metaphors and analogies to talk about God because Jesus was incarnate, one of us, a human, a man. God, yes, but undeniably human. So, anyway, okay. That's a lot more than you expected, isn't it, Charlotte?
Do most Jews in Jesus' time and in Paul's time accept Jesus? No. They don't. Uh, maybe a few, but generally people get locked into their ways. They get locked into their traditions. All they figure is, dang, those Israelites have got a pretty tough God on their side. That, that isn't necessary enough to make them change. They just say, we've got to toughen up ours. <laughs> yeah, you would think, you know, there's lots of things like that. But what did Jesus say? He says, look, I could die be raised three days later and still people won't believe and most don't it just it's just we get set in our ways of understanding how the world works and who we are and everything else and it's so hard to change it's a miracle anybody comes comes to jesus i think because that's why it often happens when a person's defenses are down when they're undergoing hard times and they realize, no, you know, I'm not in total control of my life. And they realize, is this all there is? No. And so when their defenses are down, they can actually accept what God is offering them. The Philistines here, they just lost a battle. Okay. Well, verse 50, ah, okay. And, and there was peace at the last part of verse 14, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. That's a very traditional enemy on the south side of Israel. So it's just saying, there was peace in the land. Okay? Peace in the land. So Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgad and Mizpah, that's up and down the countryside, right, place to place, judging Israel in all those places, settling disputes, is what we're talking about. But he always went back to Ramah. Ramah would be, well, here's Jerusalem, here's Mizpah, Ramah would be right in between them here. Still up on that central spine, um, uh, but closer to Jerusalem than Miss Paul was. Still, that's kind of a centralized location. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also held court for Israel. In a sense, real, court. Settling disputes under the law. What is the law? The law of Moses. That's the Mosaic law. If you read any of the law of Moses, it's, it's really very much case law. Um, type of things, you know. Here's what you do if your enemy's oxen falls in, if if your neighbor's oxen falls into a hole, or your oxen falls into a neighbor's hole, or the oxen whatever, and it goes on and on and on and on with all these instances. And so the judges or Hebrew um, judges later would interpret the law of Moses in such a way as to have a law-abiding society, as best they could, I guess. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to Yahweh. So really, all is good, good, and good. Things are in their place. Don't you like it when your life feels like that? Does your life ever feel like that? <laughs> Everything's kind of in its place, and it's, you know. 
maybe late on Christmas Eve or something like that. You know, usually, you know, no turmoil. Maybe not even then. Okay, but no turmoil, just everything all lined up and it's good, good, and good. Chapter 8, I believe then, right? Okay. Well, time has passed. When Samuel grew old, I don't know how old. <laughs> um, I thought you'd probably ask, Charlotte. When Samuel grew old, <laughs> he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders, naturally. I guess that's naturally. I don't know. He appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second son was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. Now Beersheba, did I bring? Okay, like there's Samuel. This is, okay, so, so here is like Mizpah, Ramah, all that map I just had up there. That's all right in here. Down here at the south, that's Beersheba. So it's down in the southern, southern end of the land claimed by the Israelites. And they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not follow Samuel's way. They turned aside. And they turned aside after dishonest gain, going for the buck, and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Who do they sound like? The sons of Eli. You know, you wished, don't you wish that all this Jesus stuff and the Holy Spirit was sort of just automatically passed on to our children? And it's not every generation's got to come to Christ themselves. Every generation has to be born anew themselves. It just isn't, you might, you might pass on, you know, brown hair, but you're not going to pass on being reborn in that way. You have to raise your kids and help them. And even then, acknowledge that there's much of it that's going to be between them and God. So, because again, no robots, no puppies. And here, like Eli, even Samuel's sons, enticed by the buck. That's almost the story of Israel in the book of Judges. It's just the, the succeeding gen, the generation that returns to God and wins the victory. The next generation comes and, eh, not so good. And then the third generation comes and it's all fallen apart. And you have to raise up a new leader and it's just kind of the, kind of the way of things. Verse 4. Well, it hasn't gone well with Samuel's sons, right? So all the elders of Israel, these would be the senior people, like the tribal chieftains and other important, other important fellows in Israel, gathered together and came to Samuel at his home in Ramah. And they said to Samuel, you are old. <laughs> Thanks. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. See, all the peoples around them, the Amorites and the Philistines and everybody else that they have business with, and they have a lot because this, this land is like a highway. This is desert. So if you're going to move from like modern-day Turkey and Syria down to Egypt or Egypt up, you're going to pass through with Israel. It was like a like a highway, beginner change there. 
So they had lots of experience with other cultures and peoples, and they all had kings. And of course, Israel has a king. Who is Israel's king? Very good, you get an A. <laughs> now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to Yahweh. And Yahweh told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So God is basically saying, it's really, for the elders of Israel, God says, I am their target, not you. Because God is to be king, and now they've said they want a human king. And God says to Samuel, you need to go, then, go to them and tell them very carefully and solemnly what it means to have a human king. Because that's what they've asked for. And to go to Don's question earlier, it is what they're asking for. And if they persist in asking, then it is what God is going to give them. Because they're, it's like they're adults. And God treats them that way. So, verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He gathers them all together and he says, Okay. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign, assign to be commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his daughters. He will take, that word take, if you're a person who marks in your Bible, you should circle the word take every time it appears in this paragraph. Because it will come back in the story of David in a very powerful way. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But Yahweh will not answer you in that day. You're adults. If you want this, you can have it, but don't come running back to me. Okay? Does it sound harsh or does it sound... I don't think it's harsh. They're being duly warned by God's judge, Samuel. 
They're being foolish and unwise. And they were going to reap the consequences of their choices. That's what the Old Testament is about. The Old Testament is about a people. It isn't that God's sitting on a mountaintop thinking, I'm going to smite these folks today and smite these other folks tomorrow. Those are the Greek gods and goddesses. They just sit up there on Mount Olympia and they just look down through a hole in the clouds and they're just smiting people and playing with them and messing up their lives and all kinds of stuff. That's not who God is. As, Ezekiel, as it says in Ezekiel, God allows their sins to be turned back on their own heads. Sin has consequences. And they're, they're turning away from God, they're insisting upon a human king, it's going to have dire consequences. This is a big change in course for Israel. Through all the ups and downs in Joshua and Judges and in the early book of Samuel, this is a big change of course. God was to be their king, but now no longer will God be their king. Now they will have a human king like everybody else. So, of course, Samuel ponders this. Verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Well, if you're Samuel, what are you thinking? Who just routed the Philistines? Actually, a long time has passed because he's grown very old, but they've been at peace. But what, what brought about that peace? God, who won the last battle they had against the Philistines. God, who lost the previous battle, the Israelites, when they tried to carry the Ark of the Covenant out there. Ah, oh, it's a sad day. It is, it is treating people with respect. It's, it's respectful. It's respectful. Um, it, it's, is it not what we do with our own children? When the, as they grow older, do we not al allow them to begin to take on the consequences, good and ill, of some of their own decisions? Otherwise, what are you doing with your... your the words we use were infantilizing them. We're keeping them like little babies or, or six-year-olds or eight-year-olds or ten-year-olds. No. These people, they're making a choice and it's a terrible choice they're making. And God says, okay. 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 Is God still going to persist? It's still God, is God still going to be relentless in his pursuit of them, in his love for them? Yes. And what is the culmination of that pursuit? Jesus. Bingo. Wherever that, whoever said that. It's Jesus. Jesus is where this whole thing is headed. That in the end, God loves these people so much that he will become one of them. He will become a Jew who does keep that covenant every day, loving God, loving others. God will, God, Jesus will do and be for Israel what they are unwilling to do and be for themselves. God will become for Israel what they are unwilling to do and be for themselves. That's where the story's gonna go. That's the shocking part. That, that, is the, that is the part that Paul says, nobody would ever have guessed something like the incarnation. 
That's crazy. But it's true. It's the most profound expression of God's love. If, he had, if God were a God of the magic wand and he just made all these folks do exactly what God wanted them to do, would you need Jesus? No. Would you, would, would they genuinely love God? No. They would have all drunk love potion number nine. I'm going to use, I'm going to beat that, I'm going to beat that to death now that I thought of it, Patty. Prepare yourself. <laughs> I do have the right song, don't I? Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know. I'd like, to think, I'd like to think that sometimes the spirit implants those things in my brain, but I don't know that that's actually true. <laughs> yes, Patty. How does Sam, how does the father not realize that his sons are pretty rotten? How, how is that? How many times has that story been told in the course of human history? It's hard to see your children with clear eyes that other people, as other people see them. And Samuel evidently did not. He just did not. You know, what does it, what does it show about Samuel? And he wasn't perfect. He was flawed like the rest of us. Should he have seen what his sons were doing? Would it have made, yes. Would it have made a difference? I don't know. These people are set on having a king. They want a king. Samuel's going to die. He's getting old. They want a king. So, I'm just wondering why he doesn't go to God, who he has a very intimate relationship with, and say, the people are begging for a king. Help me. You know I'm old. My sons are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Please send us another prophet. Send me a leader. Give me guidance into who is righteous among these people. Give God the option of making a choice there. Well, God always has the option of making choices. God, but God, perhaps God looks inside, and I'm just saying perhaps, because you're always, people always ask me, well, why, what does God do? Why does God do what God does? And I certainly don't know, but... God, perhaps God looks inside the hearts of the Israelites and see that they're going to demand a king and they're not going to back off from this. So you, here's the best we can do, Samuel. You need to go and warn them in a really tough way about what it is they're asking for. Because if they persist in asking for it, they're going to get it. And so that paragraph that I just read, take, 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 take. How that doesn't scare people off from having a human king, I don't know. Right? Take, 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 take. Did Samuel pull any punches? No. He'll take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your property, he'll take your animals, he'll take everything you have. He'll enslave you. <sighs> take, 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 take. And still, they're going to persist. They're going to persist. They're going to persist. And maybe there wasn't another way forward. And God look, could look in the hearts of the elders and see that the time had come. That these people were simply going to insist on having a king. What, 
What's the advantage of a human king in, in pra daily practical sense? It's a person with a body that you could actually talk to and, you know, have a beer with and <laughs> whatever, right? So, so God is spirit. So in a way, it's amazing they've gone this far without having somebody that they would see as a king, which means the ruler over the various tribes. And we'll see that that process takes a long time for them to become united under one person. It might seem that way, but God knows their hearts. Right? God knows their hearts. And so what God, who knows their hearts, says what? That it's not really Samuel, it's not really the sons, it's about the rejection of God. And God has many volumes of evidence going all the way back to the Exodus about that. That the fundament, this is the, the fundamental problem of Israel is that they do not stay faithful to God. For the Jews, for the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, the darkest day in the history of Israel was the day that the Israelites made a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses was up there. And Edward G. Robinson was down there urging them on, you know, and they end up worshiping this stupid golden calf. That is like the darkest, darkest, darkest. They haven't even been away from Egypt for three months and it's already, they're making a stupid golden calf. And there's, well, we're not going to get to that story because that's coming. I don't want to give away too much about what's coming. Or it's, you know, I, I like to have teasers, but not give it all away. Okay. So look at verse 21. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before Yahweh, and Yahweh answered, listen to them. I'll insert a sigh and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Chapter 9. There was a Benjaminite. Benjamin is one of the 12 tribes. It's a small tribe. A man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, and the son of Becherath the son of Aphiev, Benjamin. Kish had a son named what? Saul. Saul. Do you recognize the name Saul? Yeah. Saul will become the first king of the united Israel. He had a son named Saul. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. So when we are introduced to Saul, we are told a couple of very important things about him. He's really, really good looking, and he's really, really tall. He is Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Big, tall, strong. It's sort of like if you were going to send to central casting for a king, this is the kind of person you'd want. He looks the part. 
he's handsome, he's rugged, he's tall, he's strong, you know, the whole thing, you know? Yeah, sure, this is who Saul is. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost, and Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim. I'll put the map back up. Okay. <clears throat> he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went into the district of Sha'alim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. Benjamin is this little bitty area down here. Benjamin is the smallest of the tribes. When they reached the district of Zuth, there is a man of God. When the, come on, Scott. When they reached the district of Zuth, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come. Let's go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. That, that's kind of nice. I mean, really. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want, you know, dad to worry about him. But the servant replied, look, in this town there is a man of God. Now, a man of God is an expression for a person who is seen by others to be maybe a prophet of some kind. Um, in these days and in the times to come, there are really a, a number of them. They're not all named. We don't know much about any of them, but they're seen by people in, um, in this culture as being like a man of God. Um, and if you went to other cultures around the world at that time, you would find other people like that. Soothsayers. Seers, S-E-E-R-S. -E people who seem to have a special spiritual connection. In this case, it's going to be to Yahweh, but the idea of those kinds of folks is not limited to Israel. So this man of God, he is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. So let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take, because they don't have GPS. Saul said, to his servants, if we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered him again, look, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. That's really not chump change. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Now, you get an explanation from the person who is finally pulling all this together. A writer, an editor, a compiler is going to use a little, it's going to inform you of something so that we can better understand something that that person thought was important. Formerly in Israel, like, hey, way back in those days when these things were happening, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, come, let us go to the seer. C-S-E-E, -E, the seer because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. He's just relating what I just told you, which is that these different offices, expressions of these people who are seen by others to be especially connected to God, in this culture and others. Good, Saul said to his servant, come, let's go. And so they set out for the town where the man of God was. 
As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water, and they asked him, Is the seer here? He is, they said. He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He's just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. High places were places where altars were, temples were, sacrifices were. Why the high places? Why high places? Closer to God. There you go, closer to God. That's, why, that's the idea behind the pyramids, the ziggurats of Babylonia. Getting up there, the further you can get up, the closer you are to God, because God is straight up there. Straight up there. And straight up there isn't really all that far. The, as far as the birds flew, or whatever hills or mountains people were around, that was about as far as the, that, that's about where the sky ended. They don't have any idea about, you know, we're 93 miles from the sun and stuff like that. You just go straight up and on the other side of the dome, we call the sky, is God and God in his throne room. So, verse 13, so the, the, the women go on to tell Saul, as soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Go up now, you should find him about this time. So they went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Huh. What is Samuel doing there? Is this a coincidence to end all coincidences? Now the day before Samuel came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, Yahweh said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. So, Samuel was sent to town to intercept Saul by God in order to anoint him to be the first king of Israel. Okay? That's, that's what happens. I am the seer. Wait, back up. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and said, the gateway to the town, um, a town of any size has, has, is surrounded by a wall. If you don't have a wall, you're, <laughs> you're what? You're dead meat. So you need a wall to keep bad people out. And walls have gates. Okay. So Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Well, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? And Samuel replied, I'm the seer. Right? Man, I'm the one you've come looking for. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. Wow. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, don't worry about them. They've been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? 
why is the desire of Israel turned to Saul and his family line? Because they've wanted a king and Saul's going to be the king. So the desire of Israel for a king is all now focused on Saul. It will be Saul. You, if, you're, if you're thinking about asking me, <laughs> why Saul and not some other dude, I'm going to say to you, I don't, I, I don't know, other than the fact that he looks like he came from central casting. Okay? Which is not unimportant, actually. That's not unimportant. You know, um, kings and... Back in the days when becoming king was a big competition, strength and size and all the rest of it, it was, it was important before they became like dynastic. So, the whole, you know, Saul, it's all going to focus on Saul. Saul answered, but am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? That's his little family within the tribe of Benjamin. Why do you say such a thing to me? And Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about thirty in number. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So, the cook took up the thigh, which was on it, and set it in front of Saul. And Samuel said, Here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you on this occasion, from the time I said, quote, I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel on that day. And they came down from the high place of the town, and Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. Roofs were flat. Okay, off, They were usually built in such a way there would be a stairway or something to where you could get up there and sit in the breeze of the evening. Because it it's, could be a pretty hot land, and so... The, the houses would have gardens and other things. Bathsheba is on the roof of a house when David spies, David looks at her and decides he wants her. And they talked together on the roof, roof of his house, verse 26. They rose about daybreak and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, get ready and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together as they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us, and the servant did so. This is Samuel's instructions. But you stay here for a while, so that I may give you a message from God. And just, what time is it? Just a little, look at chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil, and he poured it on Saul's head, and he kissed him, saying, Has not Yahweh anointed you ruler over the inheritance? The inheritance is the people of Israel, the land of Israel. He's going to be their king. Notice the oil is poured over him. He is anointed. That's what anointing is. You know, you anoint, you anoint someone in the old days, and it was with some kind of oil or something like that. So this anointing is why the, the word... Messiah is a royal term because it, the word Messiah means the anointed one. It's a king word, a kingly word, a, or queenly word. It's a royal word, the anointed one. And here Saul 
is being anointed as the first king of the United Israel. And what do we know about this? This is against God's better judgment, right? And God knows this has come about because the people have rejected God. And you can imagine that this moment and what will follow for a while is all filled with hope and the rest of it. But you have to remember how it began and the solemn warnings that Samuel gave to the people about kings. And if you take those pieces and you hang on to them, as we go forward and look at the story of Saul, and then we'll be coming to the story of David, which commences in chapter 16. We're in chapter 10 right now, I think. Is that right? Chapter 10, we'll start pick up next week. When we get to chapter 16, we meet David. So these stories become all intertwined, and the pieces of them begin building upon one another. But at bottom, at the heart of it, This is not a good development. And in it, you can find the ruination of Israel. The ruination of Israel. But that will take getting all the way to David's son Solomon. Yes? I don't think Saul did know who Samuel I don't think he did know who Samuel was. I don't know. I don't know that there's any markers that Samuel has. It's not like how, what would what would Saul see? Well, I mean, you would think. I mean, people talk. But Samuel's not even from that area, right? God told him to go there and to find this guy named Saul. And Saul isn't from the area, right? He's been looking for the for the what is it? Donkeys. He's been looking for the donkeys. So. It's, it's kind of like I think an encounter like that would happen now. You know, you, I'm, God sends somebody to meet somebody at, in the first place that came to mind, Norman, Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> who are you? Well, who are you? And God sent me to you, and I'm, I'm the seer. My name is Samuel, and you're Saul because God sent me to speak to you. It's, the, it's, kind, it's a little bit like when Peter is told to go find the centurion in Acts chapter 10, right? And that whole big story that God is engineering, right? That God is putting this together. Any other questions? All right. Well, let's pray. Gracious Lord, We do acknowledge that you, that you are our God, you are the God, there's none like you, you're powerful and loving, you are just and you are mysterious. Help us to see in these stories your relentless commitment to fulfilling the promise that you made to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham and his descendants, culminating in the story of Jesus. 
Help us to be grateful for your love, for your relentlessness, your, your, your pursuit of us sinful people. And bring us back together next week as we embark upon the story of Saul and the United Kingdom of Israel. For in these we will learn more about ourselves, we humans, and we will learn more about you. And we're grateful for that. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.